I'm sure you've heard the joke uh, about the man that went uh, to the doctor for a checkup. And at the end of it, the, the doctor sat him down and said, I'm afraid I've got some bad news. You're dying. Shocked. The man said, that, that's terrible, doctor. Terrible. Tell me, how long have I got to live? To which the doctor replied, 10. Well, the patient looked puzzled and said, but what do you mean, doc? What, what do you mean I've got 10? 10 what? 10, 10 years, 10 months. Tell me, how long have I got? To which the doctor replied, 9. Eight, yeah, you, you get it? Okay, thank you. I just thought it was worth a bit of a, more of a laugh than that, that's all. <laughs> well, there you go, there you go. Let's face it, most of us won't get a countdown to our impending death like that. But imagine for a moment you did. Imagine if you knew you had only 24 hours left on the clock. I wonder how you'd spend it. Well, we asked that very question in Bible study this past week. And in our group, we had all sorts of responses. Uh, one person thought that it would be a good time to throw the diet out the window and hang out at some all-you-can-eat buffet. Uh, don't judge me, okay? <laughs> other, one other person uh, thought it would be a good time to uh, uh, go out in a blaze of glory, uh, speeding off into the sunset on a motorbike. Others said that they would hang out with family or, or call people up to try to convince them uh, to uh, put their trust in Jesus one last time. Uh, I would like to point out that you can actually do that from the buffet, okay? You can do that. I wonder how you'd want to spend your final hours. Well, for nine months now, we've been walking alongside Jesus as we've made our way through the Gospel of Luke. And in today's passage... We're going to move from the last week of Jesus' life into his final day. And we pick up the story at the end of chapter 21. If you don't already have a Bible open in front of you, let me encourage you, grab one now, turn with me to the end of Luke chapter 21. Uh, that's page 1638 of the Church Bibles. Now this really is the final countdown to Jesus' death. And he knows it. And so how is he choosing to spend his last days? Well teaching. Here, read with me from Luke chapter 21, verse 37, 21, 37. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Well, it really says something about Jesus, don't you think? Here he is, about to be crucified but he's not wallowing in self-pity or looking to tick off daring feats from some bucket list. Now, right to the end, Jesus is selflessly serving others, knowing their greatest need is to hear the word of God. And for the moment, at least, the crowds are enthralled with Jesus. And they, they flock to him. You'll notice, uh, making sure that they set their alarms before they go to bed at night so that they can wake up really early in the morning. Uh, you know, so that they can leave on time in order to get to the temple on time, in order to find parking, get in the door, find a seat on time before everything starts so they won't miss a thing. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Chatswood Presbyterian Church. 
but I digress. The important thing to notice here is that even in these last days of his earthly life, Jesus is humbly serving others. Not that the religious leaders admire him for it, of course. No, no, no. For a long time now, they've wanted to get rid of Jesus. After all, he's been exposing their hypocrisy, publicly criticising them for their self-serving religiosity. Yeah, they've wanted Jesus dead for a long time. The problem, of course, however, has been the crowds who hang on his every word. The religious leaders are scared that if they lay a hand on Jesus, then the crowd will string them up. And so their plans have been frustrated up to this point. That is, until something very unexpected happens. An unexpected opportunity that falls right into their lap when the devil, uh, Satan, uh, prompts Judas, one of the twelve disciples, to betray Jesus. Here, read with me from chapter 22, verse 1. 22, 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Well, this is a truly shocking development, isn't it? I mean, mean, Judas is one of Jesus' inner circle, uh, hand-picked by him. Each day for the last three years, Judas has been with him. He's seen Jesus heal the sick and feed the hungry, uh, even raise the dead. Day after day, he's experienced Jesus' love and compassion and friendship. And now here he is, ready to throw Jesus to the wolves. Why? Well, Luke simply tells us that Satan entered Judas. Not that I reckon that means that we're to think of Judas as some unwilling victim here. Now, this this is just a matter of Satan now taking Judas by the hand and leading him down that road that he has already been walking. We know from the other Gospels that from the beginning, Judas has been out for himself, using his position as treasurer to skim funds from the, from the money bag. We know he was a thief. And that's led many to believe that greed was the reason behind Judas's betrayal of Jesus, selling him, for those, selling him out for those 30 pieces of silver, about a month's wages. Others reckon he was motivated by a desire to gain popularity with these powerful religious leaders. Um, Others suggest that he was turned off Jesus by all his talk about death and humility and he didn't want to be a part of a kingdom like that. Maybe it was a combination of all these things. But whatever the reason, it's quite clear that ultimately, Judas was out for himself. As for the religious leaders, well, they are thrilled with this new development because now they've got an insider who will know all of Jesus' movements. So now they'll be able to get to him when no one else is around. 
And in fact, with the Passover celebrations almost upon them, the, the timing couldn't be better. Because soon, everyone will be inside celebrating. The, the streets will be empty. All Judas has to do is tell the authorities where Jesus and his disciples are eating the Passover meal, and they can come and arrest him without the crowds even knowing. But there's just one problem. Jesus knows all about this little conspiracy. And he's got other plans for this meal. And so he's not going to allow himself to fall into their hands until the hour he determines. And so Jesus makes arrangements for the Passover meal in a very shrewd way. Rather than announcing the venue to all the disciples, he simply sends his two closest ones, Peter and John, to a location not even they know about. Here, read with me from verse 7. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Well, it's all very clandestine, isn't it? Now, clearly, Jesus has already teed things up with the owner of this home, keeping the location a mystery to everyone else until the last moment, which I'm sure has frustrated Judas no end. And so later that same day, uh, Jesus and all the disciples gather at the house for what will be Jesus' last supper before his death. And he makes that very clear to his disciples from the outset. In fact, he says it twice. He says that he will not eat a meal like this with them again until the great heavenly banquet, when God's longed-for kingdom finally comes. And as they all sit down to eat, well, it's not quite the picture that, that often comes to our minds. You know, the, the one in Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, you know, with all the disciples sitting up, upright on, on, on chairs, um, all down one side of a big, long trestle table. Uh, very convenient for the painter that way. Now, it's probably a lot more like this picture, with everyone reclining around a low table, as, as was the custom of the day. Which I think is pretty cool, don't you? Until <laughs> I think about the terrible indigestion that I would get if I ever ate in a position like that. That is Gaviscon territory right there. <laughs> now, of course, this Passover meal was very significant in the life of Israel. It was an annual celebration of the night in Egypt when the angel of death passed over everyone who had marked their door frames with the blood of a sacrificial lamb, as God had commanded. Now, each year, Jews would, would gather in Jerusalem to sacrifice a Passover lamb in the temple, and, and then eat it at this meal as a solemn remembrance of their rescue from Egypt. 
But after 1,500 years of Passover celebrations, Jesus now gives new meaning to the meal, reinterpreting it to be all about his impending death. He takes some flat bread and uh, he breaks it. And then he hands it to his disciples, saying that it represents his body, which is about to be given up for them. In other words, just like the sacrificial lambs in Egypt, Jesus will die to bring God's people life. Then Jesus passes around a cup of wine, telling the disciples that it represents his shed blood and signifies God's new covenant with his people. It's a statement that recalls what God had said 600 years earlier through the prophet Jeremiah when he promised to establish a new covenant to forgive the wickedness of his people and remember their sins no more. That's what he said. Because you see, the blood of those lambs in Egypt and all the old covenant animal sacrifices that followed, well, they could only, they could only cover sin. They couldn't take it away. But now Jesus' blood would save God's people by, by dealing with their sin once and for all. And so you see at this Last Supper, Jesus, he reinterprets the Passover meal to show that his death will be God's all-time greatest act of salvation. And obviously that's a truth not to be forgotten, which is why he tells his disciples to continue this special meal into the future, using those symbols of bread and wine as a way of, of remembering the significance of his death. But then Jesus drops a bombshell on his disciples. One of them is a traitor. Someone they've all trusted is going to betray him. Well, naturally, the disciples are shocked and start speculating amongst themselves which of them it could be. Uh, Judas playing along uh, perfectly. Can you imagine? <gasps> what? <laughs> I can't believe it. Ah, get out of here. One of us? Surely not. No, it couldn't be. Then again, I have always found Bartholomew's eyes to be just a little bit too close together. Just saying. And the fact that the disciples have no idea it's Judas is certainly tribute to his ability to fake it as a follower of Jesus. But Jesus knows the truth. And he knows two other things as well. Firstly, that God will ultimately use Judas's betrayal to accomplish the salvation of humanity. And secondly, that in the end, Judas will be doomed, paying for his treachery with his very soul. I wonder what thoughts race through Judas's mind as he realises that Jesus knows. The other disciples, however, have other thoughts filling their minds. Because in an almost farcical development, though no doubt to Judas's relief, uh, the disciples' conversation about betrayal suddenly turns into bickering about which of them is the greatest. Here, read with me from verse 14. Verse 14. When the hour came, 
Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Unbelievable, isn't it? And as we read this, we're like, "Ah, guys, did you not hear anything Jesus just said? He's about, he's, he's about to die as your sacrifice. He's about to be betrayed. And all you can do is argue about your own glory. I mean, how ungrateful, how insensitive can you be? Obviously, the disciples still haven't got it. They, they still think that Jesus is on about some earthly kingdom. And so here they are again, jostling for top positions. And I confess that if, if, I, were, if I were Jesus, I'd be like, oh, that's it. I'm over this. I'm done with you guys. I am out of here. But thankfully, for everyone's sake, I'm not Jesus. Because instead, he gently rebukes the disciples, showing them that they've bought into the world's idea of greatness. The kind we see in powerful despots who lord it over people, while at the same time calling themselves benefactors. You know, they're tyrants who walk over people and then expect their subjects to clap for them and tell them how grateful they are. But that kind of leadership is utterly self-serving. So Jesus tells the disciples that they shouldn't think like that anymore. Instead, they should have the attitude of, of a youngster, of a young, of a young person who humbly serves those with authority. You know, a little bit like an apprentice today, um, just out of school, uh, who's always sent off to get the coffees for everyone else. You know what I'm talking about? That's how the disciples should think of themselves. It should be like a, a customer in a restaurant who gets up from his seat and asks the waiter to sit down and starts waiting on him. Can you see what Jesus is doing here? He's turning this whole con the whole concept of greatness on its head. This is upside down greatness. Because in God's kingdom, that's how it is. You don't become great by demanding to be served or, or applauded, but rather by using your position in life to humbly serve others. 
And if the disciples think about it for half a second, they'll realise that that is exactly what Jesus has been doing all along. He's been among them as one who serves. And it's his example that they should now follow. Besides, according to Jesus, all this, all this glory-seeking, it, it's silly and short-sighted. After all, when God's kingdom finally comes... Jesus will be glad to give all his loyal disciples a place of honour at his heavenly banquet table. And he'll even give them thrones of their own. The point being, when God's kingdom comes, there'll be plenty of glory to go around. So for now, the disciples can simply focus on humbly serving others, following Jesus' example. Here, read with me these final verses for today from verse 25. Verse 25. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And with that, we come to the end of today's passage. What have we seen? What have we seen? Well, there, there are four main players in this drama, aren't there? Four players that we've seen. Uh, firstly, there are the self-serving religious leaders uh, wanting Jesus dead. There's self-serving Judas planning to betray him. There are the self-serving disciples arguing about who's the greatest. And then there's Jesus using this Passover meal to picture his humble and sacrificial death for the world. So, what are we to make of this, do you think? Will anybody here remember the show Sesame Street? Anybody here watch Sesame Street as a kid? Yeah, yeah, most people did. Well, you know, there was a song they used to sing. Perhaps you remember it. Um, it's a song that I reckon may well have been inspired by tonight's passage. Do you know the one that I'm talking about? One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other by the time I finish this song? Your time's nearly up, everybody. All right, children. <laughs> Which of these things is not like the other? Hmm, I wonder. 
Not that hard, is it? Even a preschooler could get it. It's Jesus. It is so obviously Jesus. I mean, he stands out as so extraordinarily different to everyone else in this passage, does he not? Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator, the King of Kings, the one who calmed the storm and before whom the demons trembled, the most important person ever to walk the face of this earth. And yet there in that upper room, he reveals so clearly to his disciples through that Passover meal that he has come not to be served, but to serve. To be a sacrifice for them. To lay down his life for them to give his body and blood to them. You see, unlike most earthly rulers, Jesus wasn't there to use them. He wasn't there to walk on them. He wasn't there to make everyone clap for him. He was there to serve. And in the most humble, sacrificial way you can imagine, the religious leaders, Judas and the disciples, were all seeking worldly greatness. They were all willing to sacrifice others in order to be number one. But Jesus, he is going to sacrifice himself to put others first. And in so doing, he turns greatness on its head. Not just for his disciples back then, but for us, his followers today too. You know, it's so easy for us to read this story of the Lord's Supper and shake our heads and at the disciples. But friends, before we get all high and mighty, I wonder what notions of of worldly greatness fill our own hearts. Let me ask you, in the workplace, in your home, even here at church, is your attitude, serve me? Or is it, how can I serve you? Which one? Perhaps a better question yet is, how would the people in your life answer that question about you? Your work colleagues, your family, your housemates, your churchmates. Would they see you as someone who says, serve me? Or how can I serve you? And then when you do serve, What's really going on in your heart? Are you truly serving for the good of others? Or is it ultimately that you might be recognised and praised? I mean, how screwed up is that? That we can even turn serving others into serving ourselves. But when you think about it, 
Even Judas served for three years at Jesus' side. Though ultimately for his own purposes and with a heart far from God. Friends, I don't know about you, but I, I think sometimes I'm a little bit more like these disciples than I care to admit. But that's why I'm so very glad that God's included this story in the Bible for us. Showing the, showing the disciples as they really are. Warts and all. Because I can see how Jesus willingly goes to the cross, even for self-serving people like them and like me. But the disciples give me hope for another reason too. Because though it's true they, they didn't get it at the Last Supper, they soon would. After Jesus' death and resurrection, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, everything changed. And they went on to pour out their lives in the humble service of others, following Jesus' example of upside-down greatness. You can read all about it in the book of Acts. And I believe the Holy Spirit can do the same thing in us Christians today too. He can help us be humble, sacrificial servants for God. And I believe that one of the ways that he does that is through the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, because in the Lord's Supper, we're prompted to look in two directions, backwards and forwards. Firstly, we look backwards. We look backwards. As we eat the bread and drink the juice, we, we remember. We think backwards. We remember. I mean, that's what Jesus told us to do, isn't it? Do this in remembrance of me. But in the Bible, remembering, it's more than just nostalgia. You know, like watching an old episode of Sesame Street and going, oh, I remember that. Now, in the Bible, to remember something is to, to think back on it in, in such a way that it impacts, impacts the present. So in the Lord's Supper, we, we remember the humble sacrifice of Jesus for sinners like us. We're reminded that our sin was so bad that the Son of God had to give his body and blood to save us. I mean, how utterly humbling is that? He's the one that deserves all the applause, not us. It's like we sing in that famous hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. That's what looking backwards to the cross at the Lord's Supper can do. Strip away our pride and fill us with a humble gratitude that leads to, a, to humble service. But in the Lord's Supper, we look forwards too. Remember what Jesus said? He said, I will not eat of it again 
until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. A kingdom, he said, he will confer on his followers. You see, in the Lord's Supper, we also anticipate our glorious eternal future. Filled with a glory this world can never offer us. Christian, think about it. There is a time when you will be seated at the marriage supper of Jesus, the Lamb. There'll be a little place card with your name on it. And the Bible says, you will reign with Christ forever and ever. I mean, it makes all our glory hunting silly and short-sighted, doesn't it? So let's not be glory seekers anymore. All the honours and prestige and applause, it will all fade away. We'll leave it all behind. But in store for us is a crown of glory that will never fade away. And the thing is, when we're there, I am quite sure that not one of us is going to be like, oh, really wish I'd gotten five more marks on my HSC. Oh, I really wish I'd gotten one more promotion. Oh, I really wish I'd gotten one more like on social media. Oh, if only I was senior minister. (laughs) Now, when we look forward in the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that as we live to serve, we'll never miss out. Not one little bit. Friends, most of us won't get a countdown to our impending deaths. But no matter how long we've got, let's follow our Saviour's example of upside-down greatness, knowing that one day we will hear him say those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for just how amazing he is. Thank you for his humility coming down to serve sinners like us through his sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for the eternal glory that awaits us in your kingdom. Father, by your spirit, please humble us that like Jesus, we might achieve true greatness, not in seeking to be served, but in sacrificially serving others. In the name of our Saviour we pray, and to your praise and glory. Amen.